Welcome to Learn With Law. I'm Law, a serial entrepreneur, startup advisor, and your host for the show. Every week we discover and speak with experts, scientists, leaders, and artists. Today we're joined with Suki Wei, founder of Algro Biosciences, to discuss microalgae, air culture development in Singapore and Southeast Asia, and her life building a startup. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and comment to show your support and let the Google gods know that this is content worth watching and listening to. Let's stay curious, learn about Suki, microalgae, and what Southeast Asia plans to do about food security moving forward. Yeah, let me double check. Yeah, can you share your thoughts on what, how you think global uh, globalism and their like kind of the somewhat seeming way it seems to be retreating and how it's going to affect Singapore and like food security in your in your opinion? Oh, that is an interesting starting question. Um, food security is a huge priority here in this country. Yeah. I'm not from Singapore; I'm from Malaysia, so I come from the place where we export a lot of stuff to Singapore, and. Yeah. Um, in during COVID, there has been you know uh, issues with food supply. You know Malaysia kind of stopping supply of you know, eggs or chicken to Singapore, and uh, well, the Singapore government is very capable, right? So they've been able to kind of manage the supply chain, get different sources, different countries, etc. Um, but that is a huge challenge for a country like Singapore. And in fact, a lot of the um, initiatives in the sustainable foods and food tech scene is kind of under the umbrella of 30 by 30, which is uh, that Singapore aims to be uh, supplying or producing 30% of their own food by 2030. Hmm. Yeah, I think I was reading that. Um, I mean, it's obvious in what you just said, but Singapore is a major net uh, importer. It's basically like if people haven't seen or looked at Singapore on a map, um, the British used to own it, but the, it's like imagine New York City but without anything around it to send it food. <laughs> That's kind of how I think about yeah. it. It's like imagine if New York City didn't have them in the West, like shipping and agriculture all the time. So yeah, exactly. And food security is such an important thing, right? For every country, energy security and food security, you need those two things um, to even have the foundation of a prosperous country. So. Mm-hmm. How is uh how does this thirty thirty as someone who's doing something that's most likely going to help them in that initiative? How does it actually work? Like, how do they actually support you? Is it um, what does it what does it look like for that type of support? Do they give you like grants, do they give you free lab space. Like what does it actually look like to help achieve that objective for the the Singaporean government? So from what I see, it's a series, it is this umbrella initiatives with a bunch of different things happening in it. Um, I can't say that I have the comprehensive view of everything mm-hmm. that goes under 30 by 30, um, but there's definitely been, you know, um government link entities set up to support this initiative. Um, They're building up a lot of ecosystem uh, infrastructure, things like bioreactors, things like uh, shared labs, applications, uh, testing new places, right? To support startups that are contributing to this goal. Um, Food alternative protein is not just one space. It's also Mm -hmm. things like vertical farming where uh, they're also doing um, agriculture on rooftop, et cetera, right? Things that uh, a bunch of different collection of initiatives that could all contribute to that goal. Are you are you going to be building in Singapore or are you being building in Malaysia? Like where are you building your like grow algae plant? So we're actually a midstream company. So we're not necessarily super deep into okay. um, cultivation right now. Um, but we have, so our company is HQ in Singapore. Um, we think it's a fantastic ecosystem here with the right investors, with other very talented, very smart founders um, and experts, researchers, etc. Uh, we do have an R&D lab in India as well, um, where we are able to, you know, make our 
cash go a lot longer as a startup so that we can achieve certain R&D milestones in uh, the timeline that we need. Mm -hmm. um, as like a, just like a quick, uh, not serious question. Have you, yeah. um, I've, I've, I've like what I've looked at pictures of Singapore and like the major airport has like a train that runs through it. Is it really as crazy as it seems if, as you Google it uh, being there or is it, is it like, I don't know, you, it seems like you're more worldly than I am. You've been in New York and stuff. So like, how does it compare to these other places? Hmm. I think Singapore is a bit of a utopia, the way that they've built hmm. it. It's super planned out, um, which some people love, some people hate. Uh, but you do get this feeling of it's kind of like a sci-fi movie, right? In some places, in the architecture, it's very, very futuristic. If you think about it, where Singapore is um, 50 years ago, right? It's, yeah, it's it basically crazy. gained independence a few years after Malaysia, right? So it's a very, very young country. And at that point in time, it was, you know, similarly developed or even less developed as compared to Malaysia. And I, my mom was saying that, oh, when she was a kid, like she had to, uh, she, she used to go to Singapore to get cheap goods and then go back to Malaysia, right? And now it's completely mm. the other way around. And so they've had to build a lot of new things they have to build attractions within Singapore, right? Um, and build a great place to live. Um, if you see buildings like Marina Bay Sands, right? Within the airport, it's like a huge indoor waterfall. There's like mm -hmm. gardens by the bay. It's it's all super futuristic, I would say, um, in the past 10, 20 years. Yeah, I think Westworld season three was set in Singapore. Season two or I've season three was set Westworld. in Singapore. Okay, yeah. it's all right. If you if you do watch it, watch season one, and everyone can hate me for this, but the season two and three are not good. I don't like them, and there's a reason they were canceled. <laughs> season one is great. The season two and three, it's like uh, it's like they dumbed everything down. But it's all right if you're not watching it. Um, yeah, it, it looks really interesting. I think of when I when I read about these places, Singapore reminds me of Dubai in the sense that it's a like Dubai was kind of nothing like 50, 60 years ago, and it's gotten bigger. But the the difference is Dubai. Uh, I th like Singapore seems like they have an integrated infrastructure like you're talking about and people want to go there they want to build where um, in Dubai it seems like they had like a lot of really big silly things that would, people would want to come for and then there'd be like subsidies and stuff or whatever to like keep people to stay but like they weren't integrated in a way where it was easy for people to like navigate around and actually live there it was like a it felt mm. like in the way I see it and I, I've talked to people in Dubai like they're they're changing it now where it's like instead of just like hey we have things here to see we want you to stay now too it seems like one of the things that uh, Singapore did really well in the last 50, 60 years or whatever uh, is that they got people to want to come, but also stay as well and invest in that area. I mean, it's only like 300 square miles. Like that's that's really crazy. Um, but that's, that's, it does seem like if you look at those two different areas, which have various reasons, trade, et cetera, why they, they grew so well, um, Dubai feels like they kind of squandered the opportunity a little bit. And now they have to like course correct and like spend a lot of money changing it. If you've been to these places, mm -hmm. you know more, please cut me off. <laughs> but that's like my take based on what I read. No, no I've never been to Dubai. Uh, mm. It's interesting to hear the perspective on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know the Midwest, uh, not the Midwest, the Middle East uh, is uh, trying to build out their own alternative um, protein, like salt egg type stuff as mm, well. So that might be, yeah, is that, yeah. do you have, um, do you have is your plans entirely into the Malaysian area or do you have plans for like an international like uh mid not Middle East yeah Middle East not Midwest I keep saying Middle West because I'm from the Midwest uh, like how do you <laughs> see like the the business uh, pipeline going as you go from like R&D to production and, and scaling and stuff for any business to have meaningful social impact I think it has mm -hmm. to have that kind of global scale 
um, one of my favorite entrepreneurs, Alice from Entrepreneur First, like, I was part of a program and she was mentioning that, right? Like, why should you build this highly scalable business? And that's because like, if you believe in impact, right? Like your, if your business goal and your commercial uh, and your, uh, you know, social goals are aligned, right? Then you will scale both at the same time. So we're looking at, you know, something that could be global um, from day one. And I think Middle East, going back to your question, is quite an interesting place that has been on my radar um, because they also have kind of similar food security issues. Mm -hmm. They're also trying to transition away from um, an energy-based economy into a new economy, right? And um, food tech, alternative protein happens to, to be one of those where you can actually kind of start creating value anywhere in the world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Are there any limiting factors in microalgae and growing it in terms of like some alternative proteins they have like a supply chain issues like where um the, ni the nice thing is that you for the most part like everything mm -hmm. can be kind of built anywhere but like uh the bovine serum i think like only a couple places can produce that very well it's kind of like chip manufacturing in some aspects of it but for the majority of it all protein it seems like you can kind of build it anywhere but uh, you're building it so i think you might have a better uh, opinion of this <laughs> than me um so is it can you can you really build it anywhere and there's no supply like the inputs are, are fine wherever you are i think you were saying even like a, a drought ridden area uh, microalgae would grow pretty well well you need water yeah so you need it. water and sunlight and some nutrients right um with microalgae i don't think we can pretend that there are no issues with supply chain um the entire biofuels industry built on algae biofuels industry in the past you know 10 15 years has gone through the boom and bust, right? And there were a lot of learnings that came out of that period. And a big part of it is just that, you know, some of it is just really difficult to cultivate. Um, yeah. A lot of the strains are quite fragile. So they mm -hmm. do go through kind of contamination, pond crashes, and uh, that kind of brings up the cost because uh, one of the biggest factors for cost uh, affordability in microalgae is the productivity um, mm -hmm. of the cells. So uh, that being said, we have learnings from the past 10, 15 years. So then we know what we need to do moving forward, which is, for example, looking for a more resistant strain, um, you know, that can grow in more extreme conditions that typically microbes don't thrive in, for example. Yeah. I know this is a, this is segues us into a, a big topic we wanted to talk about, which is, um, uh, I write down my thoughts. And I'm mildly dyslexic. Yes. Okay. Lim uh, what's limiting plants from being um, a bigger player in alt protein as, a, as an ingredient? I know that's like one of our big temples we want to talk about today. And it seems like that'd be a good segue. Um, is it the, is it the strain? Is it the, um, I think, I feel like we touched on a little bit of it, but what, what do you see is limiting in them? Like why aren't people using them more, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. Um, great question. I, First of all, I'm not against a plant-based space, right? Like I've mm -hmm. been on a plant-based diet for the longest time and I love plants. Um, and I think that in the end state uh, future of food, if you call it, right, it would be a combination. It would be a hybrid of all of these different technologies. So I think plants have offered us a really great foundation to create um, really interesting products that we've seen in well, not just the past 10 years, but the past hundred thousands of years, right? It, it, especially in Asia, where you see tofu, uh, seitan, or et cetera. 
Um, that being said, um, we're trying to substitute or displace the animal agriculture industry. And this is a really, really broad space, right? With beef, with chicken, with seafoods of all sorts, dairy. And within each of that, you have like different cuts or whatever, right? So imagine trying to replace all of that with two or three crops, you know, your soy, your wheat, your pea. That is definitely a one-size-fits-all solution. And you're not going to expect, uh, you know, your fish to have the same base as like a chicken or whatever, right? Which is what it is today. So I think there's a lot of room to discover new ingredients, whether in the plant kingdom or in the cellular agriculture space or, you know, cultivated space. Um, I love the cellular agriculture space just because I think it offers so much possibility um, in terms of the ingredients that you can use, right? Uh, with fungi, I think that's much more well-known than microalgae today. It's receiving a lot of press um, because of its kind of texture uh, functionalities. With microalgae, actually, we have talked to a bunch of brands that have tried out or wanted to try out microalgae before for um, properties like flavors, nutrition, um, functionality, right? But the industry has been kind of challenged by um, cost issues, certain off-notes issues, uh, color issues, et cetera, right? Which kind of limited how far we could grow as an algae uh, ingredient. Um, so I think to address your question, it opens up a brand new spectrum. So imagine you're an artist and you get, you know, mm -hmm. you had like three colors before and now you have like five other colors to play with to create an amazing end product, right? Um, so, you know, unlocking that. And the second part that's also very important is that um, with cellular agriculture, things like microalgae, it is um, so fast growing because you don't need to grow additional uh, parts of the organism that you might not necessarily use, right? So you don't need to grow like roots or stems or whatever when you're only using the fruit or the leaves, for example. Um, so that means it's incredibly efficient. It's way more efficient in producing proteins or any other um, micronutrients, uh, high value compounds, specialty ingredients that uh, you might have, incredibly efficient. And it's also incredibly sustainable because uh, it utilizes so much less water, land, uh, carbon emissions as well. Mm -hmm. I think I was reading that um, one, one downside to plant proteins um, or plant-derived proteins is that the absorption rate for plant-based protein is not the same as animal protein. Apparently our bodies absorb plant um, animal protein easier. Is that something, uh, do you agree or disagree, I guess, with that point? Because I just read things off the internet and we don't know if they're true. <laughs> but uh, I, well, I, was, I was reading yeah. a publication, it could be true. Yeah, so that is um, objectively measured by the PDCAS score, or now a lot of people prefer to use the DIAS score, uh, which indicates your protein digestibility. Um, and it is true that for uh, most of uh, plant protein sources, it has a lower score as compared to animal sources, which is typically one. That's the kind of max. Um, and plant sources, you know, it could be anywhere between kind of, uh, above 0.9, which is soy, which is very, very good. Um, to something lower down to like 0.6 or, or something like that, right? Um, so that is true that a lot of plant sources are not necessarily more um, digestible, available to humans. Um, that being said, um, 
I've been on a plant-based diet for a long time and I don't see a huge detriment uh, to my health. Uh, probably because, you know, just have like a balanced diet with a wide range mm-hmm. of protein sources. Um, yeah. And I think for flexitarians, it's also kind of less important of a factor, to be fair. Um, but with microalgae specifically, um, we do have to take care of that, right? So making sure that whatever we produce, like the proteins at the end is highly digestible, if not superior to a lot of the plant options. Because if we're trying to, you know, create something new and get adoption going with companies, with end consumers, it has to offer something better than what we have today. What is, just for like regular algae, if I were to like go out there and grab some and eat it, what would be the absorption rate for that? Oh, good question. It depends if you're talking about macro algae, which is seaweed, or mm. micro algae, which is uh, the you know cellular organisms. Um, I have not seen the numbers for macro, but I know for some micro algae, uh, it could be anywhere between 0.6 all the way to above 0.9, right? So it depends mm. on um, how you process it, what strain it is, et cetera. So that's part of the consideration when we're developing the product. Yeah. And what's a flexitarian? What's a flexitarian? I've never heard of this word before. I imagine it's like vegetarian, but then you eat anything. So it's like, <laughs> are they just regular eaters? I don't know. I think it's a really industry bubble kind of term. <laughs> um, a lot of people haven't heard of it. Um, we coined the term flexitarian to describe people who are, uh, who have a flexible diet in a sense that they don't mind taking a few days of Mm. plant-based diet and the rest of the time they're kind of eating everything um and a lot of it comes out from you know sustainability reasons or health reasons i think yeah like the hardcore vegans are a lot of times uh much more uh doing it out of compassion for animals whereas for flexitarians it seems like it's usually for health or environmental reasons I'm still an omnivore then. I was like, oh, is that going to be me? Um, I just eat anything because I am a monster. But um, is uh, <laughs> something interesting about the macroalgae is um, I'm reading about like different ways that people theorize that people came to the Americas. And so you have the Siberian land strait. But there's another theory where that uh, people came from Asia on a like a like a kelp algae highway that was off the coast. And like, they would just like, whenever they were hungry, they would just like, you know, fish and then eat algae or or kelp that was right nearby. And it was just like so nutritious. And then they like kind of populated the United States from that. Well, not the United States, uh, the Americas um, from that. It's pretty cool. So you're all Asian. (laughs) Uh, The name Americans are. (laughs) I'm a dumb Westerner. I'm from Germany or Norway or something. It'd be cool though. The name Americans, yeah, it does seem like they're, uh, I mean, yeah, they're all, that are Polynesian. Cause there's another theory that they came from, uh, they came across the ocean. But yeah, I like the idea that I they mean, we're, we're used all the highway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the difference between like you and I genetically is like very small, which is weird. There, there are some species that have a smaller population, like 50, like they're endangered. And the difference between their like one member and another member is bigger than like you and me. Like our, the difference between an average human and mm. another average human is actually really small. It's because like there were several points in our history where like there was like 2000 of us left. And so our Oh, genetic variants, hmm. which is weird. You know, it's pretty cool. Like we can look different and stuff, even with such a small yeah, variance. Really like, cool. We're not like clones or anything. But yeah. You know, there's this random fact. I don't know if it's true because I read it off the internet. But <laughs> like, oh, you're all kind of 98% similar to a banana or something like that. <laughs> I mean, okay, it sounds really ridiculous when I say it, but I don't know. <laughs> I, I like, you know, bananas are tasty. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be against it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. We're, I think we're closer 
more closely related to like fungi like fungi are more closely related to us than yeah, like yeah, trees i think like they they have yeah. lungs for instance fungi they breathe mm-hmm. and they they're kind of intelligent if anyone's watching last of us you you probably are like getting a kick out of uh or fantastic fungi yes i On uh Netflix, yeah uh fantastic fun guy i think i interviewed the guy from my podcast a long time oh, ago really oh my god that's so cool Yes. I need to search uh, your podcast. <laughs> it, it was a while ago. I should have him back on now that I am at least 10% better. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's neat to read the different ways that people came to America or just like went out and like what food sources they use. And algae, like for people who haven't really been exposed to it, it's like, why would I be eating a plant? Like, you know, that's something from the sea, which because um, there's like in America, I'm thinking like the America, maybe in Asia, like people do that more. But um, and in the Midwest mm-hmm. in particular, because that's the people I talk to. Um, but it's actually like, yeah, we do. We used to do that all the time. So it makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, so- if you think about um, spirulina, right, it's not strictly a microalgae. It's a cyanobacteria, but a lot of them, uh, many people classify them as a microalgae. But that has been around for a really long time. And it has um, a niche kind of strong following among, amongst, uh, you know, health conscious people to be taking that as a supplement. So yeah, um, things like chlorella as well. Is there um is there a reason in particular that you went with microalgae over doing like salag or whatever the heck Perfect Day does to make? I, I think eventually we're going to talk about um your alternative dairy product, but like Perfect Day does that. Mm. But I think they use I think they use something with cellular agriculture. But I wouldn't be surprised if they do something with al- uh, algae as well because most most cellular agriculture companies ha- don't actually have a product derived from cellular agriculture. They usually have moved over to like plant based and they're doing like R and D. As far as I can tell, I don't, I only get what the internet tells me, but, um, <laughs> is there any reason why you went that route as well? Uh, going microalgae versus any other option to build out the end result of the products that you're building? Yeah. So credits to my co-founder, Sudhir. Um, I cannot say that I was the person who came up with the idea. In fact, I was mm-hmm. very much the devil's advocate. I was like, oh, okay, the whole space is so big. Why should we, you know, go for like this one single ingredient? Um, so my co-founder, he, is a food scientist by training and he was actually working in the u.s for a good couple of years um and developing products for some of the top plant-based brands that you would know on the shelves today um and so he's worked with a whole range of ingredients right from soy pea hemp all the way to algae and um and on the other hand you know he was building products and he kind of sensed that there was a gap, right? It was a lot of these products were missing in taste. They had certain off notes or um, it's not necessarily clean label. It's quite, quite processed, right? So um, he wanted to do something better for the space and to make sustainable foods actually the top choice for people. And um, drawing from all this experience, working with a whole range of ingredients, uh, he's you know, thought that, okay, microalgae is one of the most interesting ingredients promising in terms of nutrition with uh, functionality, et cetera. Right? So that's kind of how we got started with microalgae. Um, yeah, of course, I think there are a lot of other technologies out there and I think we need kind of help from all fronts, all technologies to make uh, this work as an ecosystem to build really, really great products. Mm-hmm. Is there, uh, with the shocks of COVID and stuff that have gone on over the last couple of years, is there any of that in um, the background of your mind as you're building your product in terms of making something that can be kind of shock resistant as things, if anything were happening, you could still produce, like it, you have water and, and stuff, you know, you can get down up by the river or whatever, or like from the tap. 
I don't know what special water if you need special water, but <laughs> like, uh, like d- d- no matter what, like the world throws at you, like your company from like a material standpoint really wouldn't be affected. I don't know if that to what it, is that like something you guys thought about as you built it. Yeah, actually, as a physical goods kind of company, you would always have um, supply chain risk, right? Mm. Um, let's say you know today we're producing in Singapore, or Malaysia, or India, right? And if there's a supply chain issue with global trade, uh, you know, slowing down or lack of capacity in shipping containers, you would have an issue shipping something to the other side, right? And you're not going to have uh, immediate infrastructure build out in America or Europe like the next day. Um, that being said, um, all protein is known to be more food secure option because um, countries that historically have not had the option of, you know, building their own agriculture systems in-house, things like yeah, places like the Middle East, right, now have the option to do so. Um, I think when you mentioned COVID, I think one of the biggest things about shifting away from animal agriculture is also um, to reduce the risk of global pandemic um, mm with the viruses from animal sources, right? A lot yeah. of these diseases, influenza that we have today are coming from animal sources, whether it's in the wild or um, in animal uh, agriculture itself. Yeah, I think the last, uh, I, I think like um, most of them, I'm trying to think if anything has come not from animals. No, they're all from animals. That was actually one of the interesting <laughs> thing about the Americas. It's all in my head, guys, I'm sorry. But interesting thing about the Americas is like when people came over, like they had a lot of, viruses that came over and like decimated the Native American yeah. populations. But there were no viruses from uh, the Americas for the most part that went the opposite way. And it's because there really weren't any domesticated animals for the, there's like alp- alpacas and uh, I think guinea pigs mm. that were domesticated in the, the Americas. So like there wasn't a lot of like husbandry where like something that we were around a lot would jump to humans like they do with like pigs, cows, etc. And most of the yeah. other um, developing world and stuff. So uh, yeah. it, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, you basically need animals. Like anything that's, that's why it becomes um, like deadly because anything designed for a human, it like things don't want to kill humans. They want to like use us as little incubators then make make more of them and like go on. So uh, yeah, I, I see the benefit of being more plant-based and um, more regulated in that space. So then we don't have problems like that. Um, as you get a small history lesson about the Americas. Um, what, <laughs> what helps you stand out? And like, so I, I, there's a lot of, there's a big boom in alternative proteins. What makes you stand out? And at the same time, like what helps, like what helps stop like a, a Google type or a entity from like giving someone like a hundred million dollars and like building what you built? Like what's your like defensibility a little bit? And then at the same time, what helps you stand out so you can, you know, do what you're doing? Good question. Um, I think with uh, ingredients, there are kind of increasing options, which, I personally think is a very, very good thing. Um, and with microalgae specifically, there are certain um, nutrition, taste and functionality profiles that really could enhance um, applications, enhance product quality. Uh, we're um, now still in the R&D phase, but we're going to be testing that out you know, sometime this year um, to validate a lot of these applications, right? But um, from literature and also from past conversations with um, other CPG brands that have used microalgae in the past, we've heard pretty good things. Now, within the microalgae space, 
um, you have, even though companies have existed for the past, you know, three, five years, you have not really seen microalgae being adopted at a mainstream level, kind of mm. rivaling soy pea or even something like a chickpea that's more recently upcoming, right? Um, and a lot of it boils down to cost. So um, when we started on this journey, we really um, started from zero, right? Like a blank drawing board and say like, okay, what are the key challenges today? Um, how can we bring costs down massively? Um, and because of that, we've taken a completely different approach with uh, creating algae-based protein um, through a biorefinery uh, that, yeah, you know, that can reach that kind of affordably to, to, to uh, reach larger populations of people. Mm -hmm. And um, we've been, we, so that makes sense. Basically, it's like the economy of scale that allows you to be uh, competitive. And at the same time, no one's really owned the microalgae uh, market in terms of like it's yeah. pie slice if i'm if i'm understanding yeah, you exactly i wouldn't really call it economies of scale as competitive advantage at least for now because we're still tiny yeah. um but really the tech stack that we're going for right the how we're creating that ingredient so um to delve a little bit deeper a lot of um, algae companies are kind of going the bioreactor route which is cool um you'd see that with a lot of fermentation companies um but you do have to feed the algae cells a lot of sugar, so you have to use up a lot of power. It's still a pretty expensive process. Um, so we're actually working with um, microalgae that's you know traditionally grown in sunlight, um, much cheaper to produce, and then working our way to make that into a palatable ingredient. Hmm. The bioreactors are they just? I imagine that like it's a smaller square footage and they grow faster. Do you have any of that advantage? I think I, think I was reading that um, yeah. one of your one of your posts was that it's it's definitely more space efficient compared to like uh, chickpea. Um, like I think it was like you, you said like somewhere around like thirty to thirty six times uh, mm. more that you can build in a hectare or something like something like that. Yeah, um, that, that's but, I, I'm pretty sure even with like the the open pond stuff, right? So mm. even without the bioreactors, you're already way more land efficient. And I think it's important to note that yes, land use is an issue in um, sustainability, but you know, do you need to be 100x more efficient or you know, 20x versus what can you produce out of that, right? How commercially viable is that? Um, on top of that, like with a lot of microalgae cultivation, it's not necessarily competing with farmland because you can go it on non-arable land. Wherever you have sunlight and you have um, water, like you can do that. Can you do like a hydroponic version of it or is that too labor intensive and kind of defeats the purpose of not using a bioreactor? Uh, yeah, so, so the um, the hydroponic version of microalgae is co called photobioreactors. Um, oh, cool. So it, essentially rather than huge kind of swimming pool style ponds, you have um, clear tubes where you grow algae in. Um, it is more productive. It does kind of reduce contamination risk um, typically, the economics work out for high-value compounds, right? So if you're growing algae and extracting this thing that's like, you know, $500 per kg or something, um, then it might make a lot of sense. Uh, but if you're kind of growing it in bulk, you want to reach the volumes where you are with soy, pea, et cetera, it's still where it is, pretty expensive. Um, but if anyone has a solution in that space, you know, to bring costs significantly down uh, with a PVR, I would love to learn more. Sweet. Hopefully uh, someone reaches out or I'll think of someone. But, um, <laughs> is uh, How do you harvest the microalgae? Is it an automated process? Is it labor intensive? 
I mean, they're really tiny. So I imagine there's just like, a, like kind of like cranberries where you like flood the area and then you just kind of collect them up into an area. But those are bigger. But I'm just imagining like there's some type yeah. of like, you just like strain the water or something. Yeah, no, the harvesting method does vary depending on your strain. And you're right that they're really, really small, right? So that has historically been a challenge. And for a lot of algae streams, it's pretty expensive to even just harvest it. Right. That's why you see algae kind of being more expensive than a lot of plants, because just the processes are kind of crazy. Um, you need like membranes to kind of filter out at that, uh, you know, microscopic um, size. Right. That being said, you know, you have some strains that are um, different in shapes and sizes that can make harvesting a lot cheaper as well. Is there any plans on a high level um, to engineer the algae with like CRISPR or any other genetic modification to have some of the characteristics that you want? Higher higher bio uh, absorption, um, easier to um, sift, for lack of a better word, that type of thing? Oh, I okay with harvesting, I think it might be a little bit difficult. I haven't really seen um, GMs in that specific space, but there has been um, genetic modifications to, you know, increase certain, you know, uh, compounds content within algae, for example, right, or um, other properties within algae. Um, it's easier to engineer microalgae than cyanobacteria. Uh, that's mm. from what I learned. Um, yeah, so there has been efforts for us where we're creating, creating food products um and like protein content uh that is lower in the much lower in the priority list just because you know if you have to clear the hurdle also for gm it makes uh going to market a lot more difficult yeah which is unfair gms are delicious uh yeah. did you is there any like selective how would you selective breed a microorganism uh but do you do selective breeding or anything like that when uh to like optimize it or like how do you uh, on a high level, because I don't want to steal your IP, yeah. how would you optimize uh, a microalgae strain? There are two ways to play with the genetic composition or you know characteristics of um, a cell, including algae. One is um, kind of your modification path, and the other is, well, actually maybe three, but the second would be strain selection, right? Just kind of screening a wide library of um, strains and then kind of uh, running certain sequencing uh, exercises on it and see what characteristics you look for, which algae fits that the best. And the third is kind of an extension of the second, which is uh, mutagenesis. So you can hmm. apply stressors to cells, um, kind of force them to mutate, right? Kind of accelerating the evolutionary evolutionary process and um, then kind of pick out whichever mutated cell that has uh, the characteristics that you're looking for. Um, we're not so focused on um, the genetics and strain for now, um, since our innovation is a lot more on the midstream, like once you harvest it, how do you process it in the most efficient way? It's hmm. interesting. I, I, I know in the 50s and 60s, we started just like nuclear blasting a bunch of plants uh, to see what mm. would bunt off and then like we bring them from there. There's a lot of uh, organisms that we got for that. I don't know, you could do that just by, you know, irritating the cells themselves. That's kind of neat. Kind of mean to the cell, but at the same time, like I doubt they care. They're just it adapting. is very, very common now. Mutagenesis um, mm. with plants, with, um, yeah, algae, other microbes. Yeah. Um, what, um, 
how much space well there's like a question i'd ask which is like way too detailed <laughs> to get an answer but uh what are some metrics that you have for your objectives and in terms of meeting them so like one thing i do is like i have like a dollar value or like it's a production value and i work back to like mm. this is how much space blah 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 and then like i have like a mental model of like how to do that how do you plan things out and are there metrics that you're tracking to achieve like have like have your vision and then metricize so you know as you're as you're getting closer to achieving the objectives or do you have a different system so you, for vision achievement you mean overall as a company uh yes or personally i mean if you want to talk about yourself behind <laughs> your company <laughs> um i would say on a personal level i have shied away from being very very specific about a particular goal and like kind of mm. tracking that and working towards that just because it hasn't worked super well for me in the past right so nowadays i kind of set themes right so um this year mm. my theme is groundedness to be grounded at everything i do and to focus on the present and building the effort rather than the result for example right uh, last year it was something else and so like Themes help me to focus my energy a lot more on the things that I can control rather than outcomes that I cannot. And also taking a page out of Atomic Habits, right? Um, I think one of the key lessons there, it's like, it's not about being perfect. It's about putting in the work every day. And even when you're doing 80%, it's still better than not doing it at all. And I find that when I have a very, very set goal, like, okay, I have to work out every single day or something. And the moment you miss that, it just creates a sense of guilt um, or yeah, it, like shot blocks your momentum a little bit. Right. But yeah. if it's a theme that I can always strive for, then there's a lot less pressure on, um, on that. Yeah. Um, as a company, I think we do need to have certain North stars, uh, and envision that the entire team believes in. Um, and we need to know kind of, this is the long-term goal. What can we do now, right? And in the next two, three years, um, where do we have to get to in order to even make this a possibility? Now, that being said, it doesn't mean that just because we achieve XYZ today, it makes a long-term goal immediately feasible, right? There's still like 10 other steps. So it's really an art of having this long-term North Star while being perfectly okay with where we are today and focus, hyper-focus on short-term and medium-term goals. Um, yeah, so also I think for me, there has been a lot of learning um, working with scientists, right? So my co-founder is a food scientist, I first hire as a scientist. And the way that they think is quite different, you know, because you can have R&D goals at the same time, it's, it's a lot broader, right? It's not like a business metric where you're like, yeah, we need whatever, $10,000 or something, right? It's, yeah. we want to achieve this goal and there are like a million pathways, scientific uh, ways to do that. And we're prioritizing these two, but if they don't work out, we have these other five, right? So it's a very, very different mindset um, that we have to balance as kind of a tech-driven company. Yeah. It's really interesting, The the both the business and personal. I haven't heard anyone describe how they make value-based decisions on theme. That's really interesting. Is it, did you get that from Atomic Habits or is it something intrinsic in yourself that you've been experimenting with over time and Atomic Habits is just like giving you a lens to um, uh, refine it? Like wh where does that come from? I've, I've literally never heard anyone use it and it sounds really great. So I'm just trying to steal it. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, feel free to steal it. Uh, 
you know, Atomic Habits is something I read, I think maybe last year or two years ago now. Um, I've also read other habit books like Tiny Habits, also a great book. Um, but the whole idea of themes, um, I don't know how it started, but it's probably over COVID, right? And I think the years before that, I used to set kind of goals and I never end up following them. I kind of fall off them in the January itself like after two weeks, you know, <laughs> it's just not great. And in fact, I probably lose track of my goals um, by the year end. So yeah, um, yeah that, that's just one of the things. And it's how I, it's also how I operate with fitness, for example, right? I used to track calories. I used to track um, like heart rate and all of that. Um, and I realized that I just became kind of obsessive with the numbers when the goal of fitness is really to be mentally and physically healthy, to feel good, right? And to feel energized. So I actually ditched all of that. And, um, and just because you don't track something doesn't mean it's not worth doing. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, they, they all, people often say that the person who enjoys going for a walk will go further than the person who has a destination in mind. And so it sounds like that's like the manifestation of your theme system is to enjoy the walk and not focus on the goal. And as a result, you go further. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, okay. To be fair, I think for business, you need to have goals, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You got to communicate <laughs> so, yeah, to other people. Right. That, that's very different. Um, yeah, but for, for personal, that's you know a bit more flexible for me. Yeah. Uh, can you talk about the dairy product? It sounds like you're in the R&D phase, so I don't know if it's close enough to, to discuss at all. Great question. Actually, we've shifted away from dairy since you last reached okay. out to us. <laughs> Um, so yeah, we, we started off as, um, working on CPG kind of mm. business model, developing dairy products with LG. Um, but we've come to realize that to really bring microalgae based ingredients into the mainstream, um, we need to have this focus as a company on the midstream and also to some extent, you know, having knowledge on the upstream side of things. Right. And to create an amazing ingredient and then subsequently create a product out of it. It's kind of running two companies at the same time, you know? So mm. um, we're now more focused on let's create a great ingredient, be it kind of natural pigments, protein concentrate, right? And then um, work with partners downstream, different brands from dairy to alt seafood to kind of egg replacers um, to see what is start application how can we tweak our midstream process to make it better for everyone further along in the value chain? It sounds similar. It sounds similar to like Ginkgo Bioworks and how uh, it's almost like a, a platform company. Granted, like I think you're focused on just one ingredient type, um, but I mean, essentially Ginkgo Bioworks only has like two like ingredient types if you're using that type of lens. But um, the do you see yourself do you see yourself kind of having like more of a, a platform that people can build things off of? I would love to be a ginkgo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's quite different, right? So ginkgo works as a biofoundry. Um, mm -hmm. It is a platform in the way that you can like screen millions of strains of microbes yeah. and optimize that and you know apply it in your business. Um, we're more downstream than ginkgo, if you think. So we could potentially partner with them to optimize certain parts of our um, production um, system, right? Um, but we see ourselves as 
and ingredients play, potentially licensing our tech to other refineries, if possible, in the future as well. Um, we may venture downstream to CPG, but I don't think that's an immediate focus for us because we want to do this one thing really well, which is um, to create a, an efficient process to really utilize all parts of your microalgae uh, to make it cost effective, to make it really, really functionally useful for food brands, right? So today we have one strain that we're working with, maybe where you're saying platform, we could be a bit more of a platform is, you know, if we expand the number of strains that we work with, because each yeah. strain would produce a different type of ingredient, right? Some are more lipids focused, some are, some have special, um, you know, nutraceutical compounds that could be very, very interesting. Some are therapeutics compounds, right? Um, what can we do with that? Yeah. Well, I was, I was talking to someone about uh, Ginkgo Bioworks and we were having this discussion about uh, if a platform company was a turtle in, in terms of how you think about it, how many turtles, other platform companies, could you build up on top of that turtle before it's just products being built on the back of the turtle? And uh, they were saying that you can only have one turtle and everyone just builds off of its back. And I was saying you could have at least one more turtle as a platform because they take yours as an example. You uh, refine the strains and you work with people to build and license and create products like they build that component of it and you just build uh, great ingredients. And I guess if you had like some type of like brain database thing like Ginkgo Bioworks, that'd make it easier for you to help them know which things are gonna optimize for them. But I don't actually think you need that. But anyway, so just having the ingredients, you have the multiple ingredients and then people can like kind of plug and play in terms of like how you build it out from there. It's kind of a platform because if you use one ingredient, mm -hmm. like uh, it could potentially become like a platform, which then makes it uh, N plus one, uh, in terms of how many turtles you can have on the on the back of Ginkgo Bioworks, um, and which is <laughs> it's just like me like testing in the wild. Can this can this be a thing that happens? Because uh, they they were they were like I wouldn't say they're adamant, but they were like you can have more than one turtle stacked on a turtle. And I was like, no, I think you can have at least one turtle. Um, if like the metaphor, I hopefully does not break down and people understand what I'm saying here because <laughs> it's like just turtles all over down. Yeah, I'm a bit lost here. <laughs> <laughs> My but bad. In in the short term, at least, you know, when we're yeah. still this tiny startup and, you know, growing to uh, something bigger, uh, we're piggybacking on other turtles, right? So um, we want to work with ingredients players, for example, mm -hmm. who have a much wider portfolio of plants, of hydrocolloids, of flavors, right? And we can just plug our ingredient in to fit within their portfolio. And they would have the knowledge to say, hey, I think your ingredient works really well with XYZ other components that we have to build these three amazing applications. You know, and they would be the expert in that on top of us working directly with brands to develop products. Hmm. Are there products in particular that would fit well, that, that you suspect will fit well with the, the first ingredient that you're making? Yeah, so um, we have seen interesting traction from alt seafood companies um, and also um, specifically for kind of egg replacer purpose. Um, with the alt seafood companies, I think microalgae has been a natural fit, being also a marine organism um, and known to have certain umami nodes that could make it clean label an easy way to, to create tasty products rather than, you know, adding a million other flavoring, masking agents, et cetera. Um, and with egg replacers, 
Um, we've seen in studies that uh, the ingredient that we're working with ha has pretty good foaming capacity. So that could be a very um, interesting application to explore in the big goods industry or eggs. Hmm. Yeah, you should, uh, Arturo from Every, should, you, you should talk to him. Maybe I don't know how they're deriving their eggs. Uh, Every, I don't know if you're familiar with them, Arturo. Well, they're using precision fermentation actually. Yeah. So creating actual egg white um, oh, okay. proteins, yeah. That's neat. Um, all right, so then transitioning, was there anything related to your business or product that we that you wanted to cover that we haven't covered thus far? Because I'm going to transition off to uh, personal things. Um, not that I think of, but yeah, honestly, like as it. someone who's been on a, on a plant-based diet for a while, I would love to see the kind of diversity in ingredients that we're bringing, that a bunch of other brands are bringing. And I think it's something that may well happen really soon. Right. And yeah. uh, I think we're all kind of stuck in this zone. where like, Oh, okay. Here are all the plant-based products and that's it. But um, being in this space, we just see so much innovation. It may commercialize, you know, in the next two years, it may take a bit longer than that, but um, I'm, I'm really hopeful that we will get a 2.0 version of all protein. I don't even want to call it all protein, but like sustainable protein. Mm. yeah what's um what's your 2023 gonna look like in terms of objectives like what, what do we have to look forward to if it can be like a little tease people can just like keep an eye out for it too well we're working to um, actually create prototypes and applications with the algae mm. um, ingredient so if there is any brands that are building um, not just all protein products but we're looking also at pet nutrition or even, you know, usual carb-based products like pasta, breads, et cetera. And you want to kind of bump up the protein content where open to talk to you. Um, we want to test out a wide range of applications right now. Where would people go to contact you so to have that conversation? Is there like a info at insert URL of website or how would they do that? Say hi on LinkedIn. You can find me on your podcast link and LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, well, the company is called Algro Biosciences. So my contact is there uh, through LinkedIn or through our website as well. Sweet. And then transitioning, uh, is there a favorite traditional or local dish in Singapore that you like? Um, and if you could tell us like uh, why. I've never been there. So I'm from Malaysia, so you cannot ask me that question. All right. <laughs> because for Malaysians, we believe that right. most of the national dishes in Singapore we do better. Right? Okay. So, so maybe your question is what local Malaysian food do you like the most? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's hard. It's so many good ones. Um, but nasi lemak is a very famous one. It's typically, it comes with um, chicken on the side, but you know, they're also very good vegan versions. Um, so it's kind of this coconut rice with chili paste, um, the non-vegan version has like anchovies and peanuts. It's just really savory, slightly spicy, very, very appetizing dish because of the coconut, uh, coconut milk, uh, that mm. comes with it. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I haven't had anything like that before. And just as like a quick aside, is Malaysia North of Singapore or is it the Island? I think Indonesia is to the East and the Southwest. Where's Indonesia on the both sides. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, Malaysia's on the north of Singapore. Okay. 
All right, great. All right, I know what the math is now. <laughs> so, it's still super like, small, though, compared to the states. Yeah. So there, there is a rivalry in terms of food, though, between Malaysia and Singapore. Do Singaporeans not like the fact that Malaysia thinks they're be- like better in terms of food production? I mean, taste. Okay, I can't, I can't speak for Singaporeans, but honestly, I think a lot of them do think that Malaysian food is better. Um, mm. That's also why they drive out to Malaysia on a road trip to eat. Uh, maybe because it's cheaper, but also because it's better. And then within Malaysia itself, you have rivalry between cities. So Penang, like this island state, kind of similar to Singapore, but in the north, um, yeah. is like super proud of their food, right? They're like, oh, I hate the out people. <laughs> I mean, that's an extreme statement, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is there, a, is there a place in Malaysia or in Southeast Asia, like a, not like a chain, but like a little place that no one would know unless they like, there's like the things that if you Googled great places to eat, that's boring. Is there, I like to find the places that only people who've lived there know about, you know what I mean? Is there a place like that that you think of that people should check out if they're in Malaysia or Singapore? Great question. I would love to know more about that too. Um, but <laughs> in Malaysia, my favorite place to eat is at home <laughs> because my family makes the best dishes. Especially these versions. Yeah. So anyone going to Malaysia should contact you and hopefully, you know, bribe you with enough money to let your parents cook for them. (laughs) Yeah. If you want to get great Malaysian food, it's usually the cheap kind of street food or um, your uh, cheap restaurants, right? Like you can probably get a dish for $2 or something. That's nice. Great meal. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe Malaysia's on my list. I don't know, inflation. Yeah. yeah. Malaysia's on my list of places to visit. Uh, no, I want to visit a lot of places, but there's like a lot of jungles to the north that scare me because there's like things that will like invade your eyes. And I like my eyes and I don't want that to happen. They're like called botflies. I think they live in like the, mm. the jungles of, of, uh, of uh, what's that stupid place we went to war with Vietnam. Um, I think they live up there. They scare me, but I, I do want to go to like the nice places in, in, in Southeast Asia. No, I, I've never heard of that. Actually, I've only heard of other um, creepy qualities. Like, you know, we've seen snakes in caves and stuff like that. Um, yeah. But do you prefer um, like hiking, beach? What kind of, you sound like you like nature. Yes. I like to hike. I like to explore. Okay. I, I like to see how far I can go. I, uh, I like walk around like five miles a day, even though I'm pudgy. Wow. Wow. Uh, so in Malaysia, it's a great place to hike or um, explore the rainforest. We have one of the oldest rainforests in the world. Um, and it also has kind of um, evidence of early human life, right? In like cave paintings and all of that. That's oh, on cool. the East Malaysia. Yeah. Are they preserved in like a his- historical way where only a certain amount of people can go in at a time or do people just like walk in? Oh, I don't know if there's a quota. Um, but yeah, it's pretty chill. Like, you can just see it on the wall. <laughs> yeah, the, the caves in France, I think they have limited the number of people that can come in because this, even like the mud that's being brought in from people's shoes, the bacteria from it are like eroding the paint from the, the oh, walls. Wow. Do you have the, like a hand, like do they do the handprint in those caves? I don't know if I recall seeing a handprint, actually. It could be like other kinds of illustrations. Yeah, yeah. I think you might have it somewhere in Peninsula as well in the National uh, the national Park. But I know for sure in East Malaysia you have 
yeah. sites that I've visited. Yeah, I, I think it's really beautiful that one of the first things that people, when their kids do, is like draw a little stencil around their hand. And if you go back in time, people are doing that on walls. It's like, <laughs> we're not all that different after all. Uh, are there books you'd recommend True. people check out? Yeah. Right. Oh, books to check out. Oh my God, so many. But I'm actually reading a really cool book right now, which is, I think, the essence of who I am. Um, it's called mm. Edible Economics by Professor Hajun. I think that's his name, the author's name. Um, and it's a combination of the two things that I love the most, right? Like economics and also food. Um, and every chapter is centered around a food theme. So like shrimp or, I don't know, potato or something like that, right? And he would tell a food story and then a food history story most of the time and then link that to some sort of economic history and a perspective about why common like conventional wisdom and economics might not be the full story. It might not be like the only right thing. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. I'm definitely going to check that out. There's There's books that are on like the food side of like, they show the whole history of it, like cod or salt. They literally just, that's the title of the books, like salt, you know, and then there's another one called Oh, cod. by um, Michael Pollan, right? I think. Yeah, I think so. Or maybe salt is by someone else. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember names very well, but I can picture the book. There's one about salt, one about cod, and there's one that's like 12 yeah. everyday items and where they come from. Like, I love that type of stuff uh, where they take, they take like a plastic bottle yeah. and they like, here's an econ lesson and a history lesson, like they, the, the yeah, powerful storytelling same, of same. it. Yeah. Yeah. I'll check that out. That's gonna be really cool. Um, is there so if if are there like movies or TV shows that you're currently watching that you recommend? Uh, you don't have to recommend them. You can just say you're watching them. Well, I have not been watching shows actually. It's been kind of a crazy month plus, <laughs> and yeah, okay, this is a bit embarrassing. But we've been watching uh, like Singles Inferno <laughs> because it's like this dating show, Korean dating show. Okay. Um, much less, uh, much milder than I think American dating shows. Um, I think culturally it's very, very different. And you can see people are like quite conservative. They're like really shy and then they finally express their feelings, right? And it's just kind of endearing um, mm. in a way to see. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like sometimes, you know, after a long day of work or something, you just need to watch something. It's kind of mindless to take yeah. your mind off things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, so it's like the um, like an american version of the bachelorette but no one's yelling smacking each other or like kissing each other randomly so it's like yeah, like a nice, yeah not like, at all. Just go on dates yeah. yeah yeah exactly exactly or like um you know they they go to a hotel and all they do is like talk and eat right and then the next day everyone was like oh what do you guys do it's like oh we talk for 12 hours <laughs> <laughs> that's so nice yeah, it's cute. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like uh, real ex- uh, they set a real- realistic expectation of what it's like to go on a date. Where like in America, sometimes it's like if there are people watching that and they're like, oh, when I go on a date, I should expect them to slap me. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Like, I know people that uh, when they first started dating and for whatever reason they weren't dating before they're in their they're in their 20s they like whenever they would have an argument they were like you're supposed to run away and I'm supposed to sing a song in a castle for you to come back it's like stop watching disney movies that's not how it works <laughs> sounds like there's like real ex- realistic expectations like what it's actually like to have like a relationship in that show um i mean i, I don't know how realistic that is because it is also a simulated environment and i think people mm-hmm. are more upfront than they usually are in real life but yeah it's a bit of Asian flavor to dating. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is, that's a, it sounds like an interesting show. Um, 
Is there something that you're currently trying to learn more about? Just uh, either skill or it could be for business. Yeah. Um, I've been a jack of all trades all my life. So I kind of do a bit of everything like bouldering, Pilates, uh, running, spinning, whatever, you know, a lot of different things. And um, I'm okay with that at a personal level. I think with work now, I want to um, focus a lot more energy to deep dive into the science, right? So like to regularly read papers uh, within what we're doing and also beyond um, to get a grasp, right? And being being a lot more immersed. I mean, I am immersed now, but I think there's always so much more that you can learn and new knowledge is being created every day in the space. So being able to get more insights and also produce insights out of that. Yeah. Is there a, a topic or aspect of the science that you, you currently find yourself uh, not knowing that much about yet or that you're, you're, you well, need to help learning more about? There's so much in microbiology, right? From yeah. like the strains, the cultivation, the different levers that you can pull to make it a lot more productive, a lot more efficient. Um, I, in the past few months, it was a lot of learning about like how the biofuse industry emerged and also kind of sank with microbiology so that we can pick up a lot of knowledge there. Um, so kind of the history, the science of it um, in different parts of the value chain, there's just so much to learn. Hmm. Oh yeah. I was just trying to think like, is there like a paper? Is there a person I could point in your direction? Um, so if anyone uh, listening and has any has a better sense, because I, I don't work with microalgae, I do know some people. Elliot uh, Roth, if you're listening, send her an nice email. Um, <laughs> put a specific call out. Um, if you weren't being a startup leader and you couldn't be like that type of uh, person, what do you think your job would be? What would you be doing now? Good question. So before I was a founder, I was a management consultant. So I was working at one of the large consulting firms doing strategy projects for uh, multinational companies and also governments. Um, and it was across a wide range of topics right, from energy to like retail ops, fintech and all that. Um, I think if I wouldn't, if I wasn't founding something, I would probably still want to be in the sustainable food space because personally I feel so much more motivated and I think I'll do a lot better um, in a space where I feel like I can have a lot of meaningful impact, right? So either sustainable foods or energy transition, um, two topics that I'm incredibly passionate about. Um, I don't know, maybe like investing, like VC or something. Um, but yeah. It'd be, VC would be a good nexus because then you get to see a lot of stuff and you have to be somewhat literate or else you lose a lot of money. It's kind of like a high risk, high reward if you're to like yeah. motivate you. Yeah, but also I think um, with VCs, it's interesting to have gone through the founder journey as well and then um, potentially take on that like investor mindset. Um, so, you know, I would have had been on both sides of the table. Um, but yeah, who knows? <laughs> yeah. All right, then. I will not ask you what your favorite Disney song is because we both know it's Lion King. And... <laughs> Thank you for joining us today with the Learn With Lowell show. Check us out at learnwithlowell.com. Anywhere podcasts can be found. Subscribe. Tell me what you thought of this episode. Check us out on YouTube in particular. It's a new thing I'm doing. Uh, Timestamps and links are in the show notes. Thank you for coming. And I hope everyone, every one of you found something today that you're curious about to learn more about. 
and you'll go out and be curious and learn something new. Thank you and have a great rest of your day.